Um, think, think about your life and uh, the things that, and skills that you have that you take the most pride in. Where are you, do you identify yourself as being the most competent? Like, what are the, the places and areas in your life that you, you take pride in or you would acknowledge, I have a really good handle on this. I know this topic. Um, I, I possess this skill. I can do this job. I have a handle on this. And then also think about places in your life where you would uh, definitely acknowledge your inability your incompetence, uh, places of where you have and, and see great need in your, in your life. Um, for me, there's, uh, there's some things that I, I like to think that I can and do well, and there's, there's places where I don't like to be in need and ask for, uh, for help. One of those is, is doing projects around, around the house. Um, I don't like to be in need in those times because usually if I'm in need in that sort of position where I have to do some job around the house, it means I'm going to have to pay a lot more for this job to be accomplished. So acknowledging my need is very costly. Um, but there's, there's certain things that I've, I've grown accustomed to realizing, you know what, um, I'm not... Uh, I'm okay acknowledging my need in this, uh, in this area. One comes to getting on the roof of my house. Now, I possess a ladder. Um, I, I have the, the physical ability to climb this ladder. And um, uh, it, it's feasible that I could get on my house. Uh, if it was uh, a short, flat roof, I would have no problem. But when the pitch starts getting really steep... Uh, I realize my need very quickly, as does every organ in my body, and uh, I start shaking, uh, and I have no ability to get up there because I figure in my head I could, I'm, I'm going to fall down. Uh, and so I've gotten to a place as that need has been exposed in my life that there is no shame in my game. I will pay or call whoever needs need be to get up on my roof and have no problems with it whatsoever. If I see that, that line in my checkbook of I had you pay so-and-so to do this job, there is no, no issue whatsoever. Uh, but if there's other things that come up where I'm like, man, I could have done that myself. I could have saved that money. Uh, I begin to get a little, uh, a little frustrated. Um, another place where I just realized recently um, was uh, I had to have surgery back in, uh, in December. Uh, many of you remember I had to have my appendix out. Now, the bills started coming in for my surgery. And at first, I started having these, these thoughts and trying to think back. Was there, a, was there a way I could have avoided this expense? Was there something that I could have done? Did I really, was I really in that great need? And then I looked down at the three scars on my belly and I realized, you know what? There was no way around this. I could not have done that myself. There's no YouTube video you can watch that will show you how to take your own appendix out. I look at that price 
the check that I had to write off to Sentara for covering my appendix. And I'm like, you know what? That need was exposed. I have no problem whatsoever admitting and acknowledging it. Now, there may be some things in our lives where there's certain things like that that we're okay acknowledging our need. But there's other things when maybe people begin to point them out that touches deep nerves within us. We get offended, upset that maybe we're being exposed uh, for our, our own incompetence, our inability to do things. And we're ashamed and maybe resistant and harden our hearts to acknowledging our need for certain things. We like to be competent. We like to be able to do things ourselves and rest and rely in ourselves. As we're continuing our way through uh, Leviticus, uh, this morning we're going to be in chapters 6 and 7. One big thing that we can pick up on and begin to see as we move through this chapter is something that this chapter is wanting and I think that we can take away from it is the the exposing in our lives and in our hearts the needs that we have and how Leviticus would point us to how uh, to satisfy or for those needs to be to be met. Um, so uh, remember, the book of Leviticus uh, may be sometimes a, a neglected, avoided book because it's confusing, seems repetitive a lot of times, or maybe so distant and foreign to our context, we don't really know what to do with it. Um, we're journeying our way through this book um, and seeing that uh, Leviticus is the way that God has provided for, uh, uh, for people to have a relationship and come into the presence of this inapproachable, perfect God. Um, The first five uh, chapters um, focused on the five main uh, kinds of offerings that we we looked at. Um, As we read, and as I read through, this is a a long passage that I'm going to read this morning. Some of it's going to sound repetitive. You're like, didn't we already talk about a lot of this stuff? Uh, Something to notice, though, is that this section, whereas the first five uh, chapters or five chapters or so, they were actually focusing more on the offerer and what the the, the person and what they're bringing and what they're doing. One way to look at what we're looking at from this side is from the, the perspective of what it is that the priests need to be involved in doing would be maybe one uh, more focusing on the priest. Uh, place and what's what's going on, um, but as we're as we're going through, and so just so that you don't get lost in all the the details of everything, um, a couple of things maybe that you could you could listen for, um, listen for things that that should be done frequently or very often, um, maybe even uh, perpetually or every day. Um, look and listen for times where it, where these this passage talks about. Holy or clean or unclean. Um, And then uh, listen for uh, places where uh, the priests get certain things, food items or grain in the in this context. Um, So if you would turn with me to to Leviticus uh, chapter six, we're going to be starting in verse eight. Um, if you're following along in one of the Bibles there in the, the seats uh, in front of you, you'll find this on page 84. Um, we're going to finish 
chapter 6 and then read through the end of chapter 7. Um, so remember, this is the Word of God for us this morning. Beginning in verse 8 of chapter 6 of Leviticus. Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth of the altar all night until the morning, and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. And the priest shall put on his linen garment and put his linen undergarment on his body, and he shall take up the ashes to which the fire has reduced the burnt offering on the altar and put them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it, and it shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offering. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. And this is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Aaron shall offer it before Yahweh in front of the altar. And one shall take from it a handful of the fine flour of the grain offering and its oil and all the frankincense that's on the grain offering and burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a pleasing aroma to Yahweh. And the rest of it Aaron and his sons shall eat. It shall be eaten unleavened in a holy place. In the court of the tent of meeting they shall eat it. It shall not be baked with uh, leaven. I have given it as their portion of my food offerings. It is a thing most holy, like the sin offering and the guilt offering. Every male among the children of Aaron may eat of it, as decreed forever throughout your generations, from Yahweh's food offerings. Whatever touches them shall be holy. Uh, Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, This is the offering that Aaron and his son shall offer to Yahweh on the day when he is anointed, a tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a regular grain offering, half of it in the morning and half in the evening. It shall be made with oil on a griddle. You shall bring it well mixed and baked pieces like a grain offering and offer it for a pleasing aroma to Yahweh. The priest from among Aaron's sons who is, an, uh, who is anointed to succeed him shall offer it to Yahweh as decreed forever. The whole of it shall be burned. Every grain offering of a priest shall be wholly burned. It shall not be eaten. Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, shall the sin offering be killed before Yahweh. It is most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. In a holy place it shall be eaten there, in the court of the tent of meeting. Whatever touches its flesh shall be holy. And when any of its blood is splashed on a garment, you shall wash that on which it was splashed in a holy place. And the earthenware vessel in which it is boiled shall be broken. But if it's a boiled in a bronze vessel, that shall be scoured and rinsed in water. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It is most holy. But no sin offering shall be eaten from, it, from uh, which any blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place. It shall be burned up with fire. This is the law of the guilt offering. It is most holy. In the place where they killed the burnt offering, they shall kill the guilt offering, and its blood shall be thrown against the sides of the altar. And all its fat shall be burned, the fat tail, the fat that covers the entrails, the two kidneys, the fat that's on them, the loins, the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidney. Uh, the priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering to Yahweh. It's a guilt offering. Every male among the priests shall, may eat of it. It shall be eaten in a holy place. It is most holy. The guilt offering is just like the sin offering. There's one law for them. The priest who makes atonement with it shall have it. And the priest who offers any man's burnt offering shall have for himself the skin of the burnt offering that he has offered. 
and every grain offering baked in the oven and all that is prepared on a pan or a griddle shall belong to the priest who offers it. And every grain offering mixed with dry or uh, with oil or dry shall be shared equally among the son, all the sons of Aaron. And this is the law of the sacrifice of the peace offering that one may make before Yahweh. If he offers it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the thanksgiving sacrificed unleavened loaves mixed with oil, unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and loaves of fine flour well mixed with oil. With the sacrifice of his peace offering for thanksgiving, he shall bring his offering with loaves of leavened bread. And from it he shall offer one loaf from each offering as a gift to Yahweh. It shall belong to the priest who throws the blood of the peace offering. The, the peace offering. And the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of, its, of his offering. It shall not, he shall not leave any of it until the morning. But if the sacrifice of his offering is a vow offering or a free will offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers his sacrifice. And on the next day, what remains of it shall be eaten. But what remains of the flesh sacrifice on the third day shall be burned up with fire. If any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering is eaten on the third day, he who offers it shall not be accepted. Neither shall, he be, uh, shall it be credited to him. It is tainted, and he who eats of it shall bear his iniquity. Flesh that touches any unclean thing shall not be eaten. It shall be burned up with fire. All who are clean may eat flesh, but the person who eats the flesh of the sacrifice of Yahweh's peace offerings while uh, an uncleanness is on him, that person shall be cut off from his people. And if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether human uncleanness or an unclean beast or any unclean detestable creature, and then eats some of the flesh from the sacrifice of Yahweh's peace offerings, that person shall be cut off from his people. Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, You shall eat no fat of ox or sheep or goat, the fat of an animal that dies of itself, and the fat of that one of one that is torn up by beast may be put to any other use. But on no account shall you eat it, for every person who eats of the fat of an animal of which a food offering may be made to Yahweh shall be cut off from his people. Moreover, you shall eat no blood, whatever, uh, whether of fowl or of animal or in any of your dwellings. Whoever eats any blood, that person shall be cut off from his people. Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever offers the sacrifice of his peace offerings to Yahweh shall bring his offering to Yahweh from the sacrifice of his peace offerings. His own hand shall bring, the, bring Yahweh's food offerings. He shall bring the fat with the beast, uh, that the beast may be waved as a, or the breast, sorry. He shall bring the fat with the breast, that the breast may be waved as a wave offering before Yahweh. The priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast shall be for Aaron and his sons. And the right thigh you shall give to the priest as a contribution from the sacrifice of your peace offerings. Whoever among the sons of Aaron offers the blood of the peace offerings and the fat shall have the right thigh for a portion. For the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, I have taken from the people of Israel out of the sacrifices of their peace offerings and have given them to Aaron the priest and his sons forever as a perpetual due from the people of Israel. This is the portion of Aaron and of his sons from Yahweh's food offerings from the day that they were presented to serve as priest of Yahweh. Yahweh commanded this to be given them by the people of Israel from the day that he anointed them. It is a perpetual due throughout their generations. This is the law of the burnt offering, of the grain offering, of the sin offering, of the guilt offering, of the ordination offering, and of the peace offering, which Yahweh commanded Moses on Mount Sinai on the day that he commanded the people of Israel to bring their offerings to Yahweh in the wilderness of Sinai. Let's pray. Uh, Father, there's a lot here. There's a lot we don't understand. Lots of details. Uh, how does this apply to us? What are you wanting to teach us? 
Uh, Holy Spirit, this is where we need you. Uh, we need you this morning. I, I need you. Use my words. Use our, our thoughts uh, to draw us closer to uh, you. Give us understanding that you would be glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, I know there's a lot of uh, details here, a lot of repetition, some, some new stuff that we haven't seen in some of the, the passages that we've read before. But hopefully as we, we look at this, we gra- gather a little bit more understanding of what's going on. Uh, remember one of the things that, that we, uh, I mentioned at the beginning is from these two chapters, something that we can see is what God is wanting to communicate uh, and focus in on His people is exposing their need. The first thing that we see as we look in this passage is, is what is being communicated to the people is uh, God is wanting to expose their need for Him. The people need God. How is that, how is that communicated? How is that shown? How would the people or should the people have picked up on that bit of information from what's going on here? Something, uh, something to, uh, to notice um, in verse uh, verse nine, as we b- began, uh, it's in this instruction on the whole burnt offering. Uh, something that is communicated is that this uh, this whole burnt offering was uh, that the priests were to engage in was to happen every night and every morning. It tells us in uh, in verse nine. That the burnt offering shall be on the hearth of the altar all night until the morning, and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. In verse 12, this is emphasized again. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it, and it shall, uh, on it, and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. And then again in verse 13, fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It will not go out. The all, it's clear from here, God is trying to communicate to the people, don't let the fire go out. It always needs to be burning on the altar in front of the tent of meeting. The priests need to every morning and every night bring out a whole burnt offering and it is to burn all day long. The one that's laid there in the morning, the other offerings are brought and put on top of it. And so continually you see this smoke rising up in front of the the tent of meeting at night. The priests need to make sure, put another whole burnt offering on there all night. And one of you needs to tend it all night to make sure that the fire doesn't go out. Always the altar needs to be burning and on fire. The whole burnt offering needs to be there before the Lord. Now remember what we learned about the whole burnt offering, what its purpose was. Part of it was is that it was uh, accomplishing atonement, dealing with the sins of the people so that they could have a relationship and be brought into the presence of the unapproachable, holy, perfect God. But also what was uh, what was going on was with the whole burnt offering is when you were in a, a place of deep distress, when you felt like everything was coming in a, a, a on top of you and around you, you had no 
no hope it seemed, you could not do it and you were desperate in need of God. You could bring a whole burnt offering to, to put an exclamation point on your plea of desperation for God. The whole burnt offering was a way to offer up deep petition and prayer and calls of longing to our God. Another reason for the whole burnt offering to bring was to, uh, to communicate deep, profound thanksgiving, gratefulness and praise for the God who provides in the midst of problems like that, for the God who demonstrates and has shown his faithfulness to an individual, to a family, to a tribe, to the whole nation. The whole burnt offering would be placed there as a means of, of showing deep and significant praise. That's why the whole thing was burnt up and given to God. So, uh, so think, about, think about this. Every day as the people are walking around, they know, they've been taught that this is what is happening. That every day, every night, the whole burnt offering always needs to be burning. Always needs to be going up. That should begin to shape and communicate something to the people. You are in need of God at all times. Every minute, every hour, every second of the day. As you look and see the smoke going up, it reminds you of our need for atonement. Our need for something to happen in order to bring us into the presence of God. It always must be occurring. The, the idea of need for dependence Remember, the whole burnt offering is to, to communicate deep longing before God. And God is saying, never let it go out. The whole burnt offering needs to always be burning before God. Communicating and showing the people we should live lives that show a desperation, show our deep need. We are in need of dependence upon God in every aspect of our lives. And as well as it continues to go up day in and day out, rising above the, the camp and from everywhere that you, you see it to again think we need to be and have hearts of thanksgiving and praise before our God who would provide for us and who would care for us. Something that this continual burnt offering gets at and should always remind the people of wherever you are because it always had to be happening. It was to never go out. Was to communicate and show you need God. I want to expose to you, Leviticus is exposing to us that we are a people who are desperately in need of our God for everything. But notice, it's not just the people who are always in need of God. It's not only the people that need God, but notice what it communicates about the priests here. Look up in verse 20 of chapter 6. Yahweh spoke at the beginning, we'll start in 19 just to catch it up. Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, this is the offering that Aaron and his sons. So just so that you know, Aaron was Moses's brother. Aaron was the first high priest and all of the, the priests that were going to serve, uh, uh, serve God in the temple. were going to descend from Aaron and the high priests were going to come from Aaron. So when it's talking about Aaron and his sons, that's uh, another way of referring to the priests that were serving, uh, serving God and making these sacrifices on behalf of the people. Uh, 
Aaron and his sons shall offer to Yahweh on the day when he is anointed a tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a regular offering, meaning this happens every day. It's ongoing. It's regular. Just like the morning and evening whole burnt offering, Aaron and his sons are going to be offering these grain offerings every day. Half in the morning and half in the evening. You shall, uh, he shall make it with oil on a griddle. You shall bring it well mixed and baked pieces like the grain offering and offer it for a pleasing aroma to Yahweh. The priest from among Aaron's sons who is anointed shall succeed him, shall offer it to Yahweh's decreed forever. The whole of it shall be burned. Every grain offering of a priest shall be wholly burned. It shall not be eaten. So what's, what's going on here is the high priest, every morning and every night, he comes and he offers this grain offering. Remember we saw picture, we saw that before, where this big pile of either uh, ground up flour was given to, to God, or maybe it could, it could come in, in baked bread form. It, but all of it is given to, to God. Remember what we saw before with the whole burnt offering, if, uh, for the grain offering, if it was people bringing it, the, uh, the priest got a little bit of it. We'll see that later. But here, when the priests are offering it, all of this grain offering is burned up to the Lord. And the high priest is offering it, not just for himself, but on behalf of all the priests. What was the purpose of the grain offering? The grain offering mirrored the purpose of the, of the whole burnt offering. Whenever the grain offering was given, it was also accomplishing and for the per similar purposes that the grain offering was doing. So think about what that's, that's communicating. The priests have just offered this, uh, this whole burnt offering to God every morning and every night. But then also what they have to do along with it is offer a grain offering on behalf of all the priests. Because you see, it's not just the people that are in desperate need of God. But it's the priests as well. They're not better off. They don't have it more together just because they have this position before God. This, they, are, they are just as much, and we could probably say even in more need, to be in dependence and thanksgiving and pouring out their heart and their soul before God. What... What this is communicating and showing us is that not only just the people, but the priest, everyone in the community is in desperate need of God. The priests don't have it all together. They don't need just a little help. They don't just kind of have it figured out. God is saying every morning and every night, priests, you need to be the chief repenters. You need to be the chief dependers. You need to be the chief praisers. You need to be the chief needers of God in the community as you represent me uh, before them and them before me. It should be apparent that you are just as much in deep need of the grace and provision of your God. But what do we see here? It's not just the, the need is being exposed, but God's not just saying, you need me, although you do. But what else does this perpetual offering, the smoke always going up? Um, 
I don't know if anybody uh, during um, Hurricane Irma and all of the, the recent hurricanes that have struck around here and in the south and on the, the east coast, um, I don't know if you're aware of a very precise, scientifically minded uh, piece of, uh, of data and an approach that FEMA uses to evaluate how desperate the situation is and how much need a community is when a hurricane strikes. It is called the Waffle House Index. Have you heard of this? The way FEMA decides how desperate in need a community is, is they look at the Waffle House. If the Waffle House is, has adjusted their hours and, and the menu is, is slightly changed... Um, then, then they give it a code yellow. Um, if, if the Waffle House is just functioning and going just like normal, green. So they continue driving into the community, past the green areas, Waffle House is open, past the yellow areas, if the, they stop in and see, hey, hours, menu, how's it going here? But when they get into an area where Waffle House is closed, where the, the lights are off, the workers aren't there, it's bad news. There's great need here. We need to set up our operation and help these people. Because when Waffle House isn't there, the community is in desperate need. And Waffle House kind of takes pride in this, of seeing them as being a, a way that when they're open, they can provide a place of hope and safety and security for the community. When Waffle House is closed down, it's bad news for the people. Look out if Waffle House isn't in operation because your entire social structure is collapsing. So one way for us to think about this perpetual whole burnt offering, the Waffle House Index. The whole burnt offering index. You would never in Israel find that it wasn't smoking and going up. No matter where you went, no matter what uh, army was attacking you, no matter how desperate it got, the, the smoke of the whole burnt offering is always going up as a pleasing aroma to your God. Reminding you, remember, what's the tent of meeting? It's God's house. God's home. It's open. He is here. He's present with us. The needs we have, the longings we have, He's providing it will never be code red as long as our God is with us. We need Him. And the smoke of the offering reminds us God is with us. He's present. He is pleased with His people. Do not fear. Take great comfort that the smoke always goes up. What about us now? Look out the window. You see any smoke? Is there any here? What about us? Where do, how does this apply to us? It's great. There's no waffle houses around here. There's no smoking altars around here. Do you know what the, the Scriptures tell us uh, in Ephesians as it talks about what it is that, that Jesus has done on behalf and for His people? As it describes Jesus' work as being this, 
Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. That language of fragrant offering is the same language of, of pleasing aroma that we see associated with the sacrifices in the Old Testament. What the Scriptures tell us is that in Jesus, the smoke is always going up. There's always a fragrant aroma. We might not always see it. Maybe we don't always feel it or sense it. But the Scriptures want to point us and remind us where you are, what you're suffering, what you're wrestling with. You are in desperate need for God. You need Him. Everybody needs Him. But what Jesus has done is He's provided a way to deal with the deepest needs and longings of your heart. Atonement has been made. And now you are pleasing and accepted by God when you look and hope and trust in Him. That never ends. That will never change for the people or for someone like me, a pastor, a priest-type spiritual leadership position. I need Jesus. You need Jesus. But He's provided for us. He's always there. The Waffle House Index will not keep Jesus from functioning and working on behalf of His people. But it's not just that we, we need God that's shown in this, these passages. Also, what we see is it's exposing for us this, this idea of a need for holiness. Do you notice how often that, that language came up of holy, most holy, Clean, unclean. Um, as uh, Lance, can you? I got a slide up there. This will help us understand a little bit. We'll get into more of it later as we journey through Leviticus. But it's important for us to understand some of these categories. We could describe. We could call this uh, um, uh, a scale of ritual purity. So, for instance, uh, holy would be down here at this end. Um, what would fall into this place would be uh, when we think holy, don't think of people following particular laws or that you're just uh, some sort of goody two shoes. Um, uh, and the way that you demonstrate your holiness is by just outwardly looking like you're going through the, the motions, you know, holier than thou attitude kind of thing may come into our mind. Think first set apart. Um, and so uh, there's certain things in the, in the life of God's people that have been set apart for particular and special uses for him. So the priest would have fit in this category. Certain places within the tabernacle would have fit into this category. Clean. Clean would have been the, the, the normal state of affairs for all of the Israelites in, in, their, uh, in their life. Um, but there would be times where you could move into a category that would be considered unclean. Um, if uh, certain uh, things that you may touch or certain things that you did, certain animals were considered unclean or, or clean. Um, and so uh, this is going to be important for us to understand these categories and realize that they're not necessarily moral categories. You could be wholly set apart, functioning as a priest, but be a complete jerk. You could be clean as an Israelite, but your heart be completely hardened towards your neighbor and towards God. You could be in a status of uncleanness because of some animal that you accidentally touched, but you have a deep passion and love for your God and for neighbor. 
it's not necessarily moral, although these categories should move you to, to, to respond morally. A way for us to think about it might be in a hospital. Um, so think about uh, if you have the flu. Consider the flu is unclean section. There's going to be places within the hospital you're not allowed to go if you have the flu. Um, let's say uh, you're uh, wanting to visit somebody who's just had a baby. You got the flu? I'm sorry. You're not going to be allowed on the, uh, on the newborn wing. We don't want this spreading. Uh, you, you could be a great person. It, 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 you're not evil because you have the flu, but you're just not allowed to do and access to certain things. Now, clean people in the context of the hospital might be somebody who they don't have the flu. They're allowed to visit and interact and engage with the vast majority of the patients and the people at the hospital, except in the operating room. You could be very healthy, but not allowed in the operating room unless you've gone through some sterilization kind of of rituals and things that you've needed to do to move yourself to where you have access to certain other places. Not necessarily moral categories, just keep that in in mind. We'll talk more about it later. But notice here how much uh, the, the talking about holiness, set apartness, things must be kept distinct and separate for special particular uses come up in this these, these passages. Look in verses uh, 10 and 11. It talks about the priest clothes. And when they're changing the, uh, the ashes off of the offering, they have to have certain clothes on. What's the deal? Who cares what you're wearing? But notice what, what it's wanting to emphasize. It's this idea of holiness. The altar is holy. Therefore, priest, when you are going to touch the altar and clean the ashes off and do it, you need to have your holy set-apart garments on because you are encountering God's altar. Once you're done with that, now you must take those clothes off, put on some normal clothes because you're getting ready to take these. Notice how it says, He shall take off his garments in verse 11 and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. Can you put our chart back up, Lance? To a clean place. Holy inside the, the, the tabernacle area. Clean outside in particular places where they dumped the ashes. Uh, these would have been a common area, but what God's saying is, is look, there's certain things that need to be, to be treated and, and done in a certain special way. And you're not going to interact and do common things. Um, and, and take holy things into these common areas and mix the two. Your focus must be on, uh, uh, on, on reverence and of seeking as you're dealing with God and coming into His altar and, and to, to worship with Him of focusing on um, uh, distinctly how to honor and glorify Him. So, hence the clothes changing. Uh, but it's, it's, not, it's not just there. Notice in verse 16 to 18, um, when these uh, offerings are made, there's certain ones that when the priests are able to eat of the grain offerings, if they eat it, it tells us they have to eat it in a holy place. When they eat it, because they were set apart and holy, uh, they, they must, if it's going to be eaten, it's got to be eaten in a holy place, a set apart place in the tabernacle. And it tells us in verse 18 that if you touch it, you have to be holy. 
if you're not set apart, you can't touch what is holy. You must common and holy aren't going to function in the same way. When you got married, uh, ladies, your wedding dress was for special use, not common use, right? You used it for that special day, for that particular special purpose. Now, I know there's things now where it's like you do a photo shoot where you like destroy your wedding dress and get it all muddy and things like that. Uh, don't don't think in, in those categories. You weren't. You probably didn't go dirt biking on your wedding dress after your wedding or before it. Now, when you go home, you're not going to put your wedding dress on and go around and clean the house or walk the dog or go hang out in the outer banks in the, for the afternoon. It's a special dress set aside for a special purpose, that has a particular respect in how you're using it. It's the same thing uh, as we're we're thinking here. But notice as it, as it goes on, other things that are set apart, certain, uh, in verse 23, certain uh, uh, offerings had to be completely burnt up and not eaten. They were set apart for a special reason, just for God, not just for common people to eat. In verses 25 to 30, the purification offering is described as being most holy. The reason it's described as being most holy is because uh, like with the peace offering, remember the offerers, so clean Israelites could eat the peace offering. Um, with the, the guilt offering or the purification offering, it's most holy, meaning only priests can eat it. It's separate and distinct, and they must eat it in a holy place. It's got to be treated in a special way. And, and it continues these, these things. Eating, uh, uh, as it goes on, um, in, in chapter 7, there was language about uh, making sure you're clean when you eat these offerings or come into contact with it. If you've gotten unclean, you cannot partake of the Lord's offerings. If you do, this language kept coming up, you'll be cut off. Cut off from the people if you disregard these certain regulations that are in place for maintaining this understanding, this idea of holiness. Holiness when you come in contact with God. Holiness when you worship Him. What does it mean to be cut off from the, the people? Um, this uh, language shows up in uh, verse 27 of chapter 7. Whoever eats any blood, that person shall be cut off from his, uh, from his people. Um, it also came up before in verse 21. Um, if you're unclean and you eat the, the flesh of the Lord's peace offerings, you'll be cut off from the people. Cut off meant that you were exiled, exempted, set apart in a bad way from the people of God. Why so? We've got to remember, what all of this is pointing to us is, is, is thinking, when I interact with God because He is the Holy One, the complete set-apart One. How is God set-apart? He's not created. That means He's completely set-apart from all creatures. Does God sin? No. That means he's completely set apart as far as morality goes and perfection goes. There's no one like him. Well, if we're interacting with him, we need to make sure we relate to him as the Holy One. He's not just any other God or any other person. We need to relate to him in a particular and special way. But remember this as well. In Exodus chapter 19, when God called the people of Israel and he uh, he saved them out of Egypt in, in verse 6 of uh, chapter 19. In, I mean, verse uh, 
yeah, verse six and uh, five and six in chapter nineteen of Exodus. If you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall become to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What God is wanting to communicate to Israel in the midst of this is that one of the reasons that I'm calling you to act and respond to me as holy is because I've set you apart. You are holy. Why are you holy? Why are you set apart for a particular purpose, a particular reason? It's because you're to demonstrate the goodness and the beauty of God to the nations. These people who don't know him should look at you and see how you respond and interact with God, how you live in his world as a way to communicate how distinct and right and good he is. What these uh, uh, regulations and rules are communicating to the people is this idea of holiness. We need to respect and interact with God in a place of love and obedience. When I was in high school, we went on field trips my ninth grade year. It was the only year we went on field trips because our entire uh, high school got banned from field trips. We were no longer allowed to go on field trips around the city of Charlotte because we were not the best field trippers. We asked crazy, ridiculous questions. We broke things. We were rude and, and uh, interacted poorly with whoever was doing the presentations. And they said, you're no longer allowed to come. Um, uh, you see, our actions in the world reflected something about our school. And later on in Charlotte, as discussions came up about redistricting and rezoning, a lot of people were afraid to go to Olympic High School. Why? Because they'd heard about the students at Olympic High School. They'd heard about the field trips at Olympic High School and thought that this was the worst place you wanted to be. Because the actions of the students reflected something about the school itself. This is what God is saying here. Don't you realize I am the holy God? I've put these, these rules in place so that you will begin to understand that you are holy and you need to relate to me as holy. Not in just common, ordinary ways. Because I've set you apart. Because you're not doing this to become my people. The reason I want you to interact with me and in the world this way is because I've redeemed and saved you for a purpose. You have a mission. I have set you apart as my treasured possession to show the world my goodness and my care. When people look at you, they should see something reflected about me and want a desire to be a part of such a people that would have a God like this, that would have rules like this, that would interact with people like this. You see, if day in and day out the people are going through these types of regulations with their offerings and realizing that the way that they live and interact before God should be one where they think through, all right, the way I'm acting now should be in a special way, a way that reflects God, that I need to approach Him with reverence and dignity, that I'm not just going to uh, treat carelessly or apathetically or commonly my position, or the stuff that God's given me. Everything that I do needs to be shaped and informed by this idea that I am holy because God has called me. Do you realize that that is the same thing is true for you 
and for me. And second, Peter, Peter uses this language. You are a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you can proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you from darkness into his marvelous light. You know what Jesus did when he died in your place? When he chose and redeemed and saved you as you were set apart as holy. The so same, that same idea in, in Old Testament Israel, in Leviticus, the principles of it haven't changed. We're not doing these sacrifices anymore because the one true one has died. Jesus ended all of these. But we are still holy. We still have a mission. Why have you been saved? Not just so that we can escape hell. Not just so that we can go to heaven and live with God when he restores and renews this whole earth. But it's so that you can participate in his mission as those who demonstrate and show him as holy and good and righteous. Leviticus is going to overflow with this stuff. And we should begin to grasp it from our hearts of longing and realizing the joy that comes from being this holy set apart people that we would then live not just our worship lives as holy and set apart. But is the way that you interact with your neighbor, is it different? Is it set apart and unique and distinct within the world because you know Jesus? What about the way that you do your job or how you speak with the cashier at Food Lion? The way that you respond to frustrations and slowness in stores or with people on the phone, is it distinct in reflecting the God that you serve? Or in your community, in your neighborhood, you may be nice and outwardly doing things, but does it go any step further? If you were to move from your neighborhood, would you be known as anything else other than just a nice neighbor? A good neighbor? Or is there something even more distinct about you that communicates to others, not just in actions, but in words, that I follow Jesus, who suffered and died to redeem me and is offering his grace to you? Leviticus is inviting us into this mission because Leviticus communicates the gospel to us of which we are beneficiaries because Jesus has suffered and died and redeemed us. We need God and we need holiness. And that holiness and that need is all fulfilled in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. We thank you for the good news of the gospel that we're seeing throughout Leviticus. Continue to shape and mold us that we would live dependent, holy lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.